hockey, well, actually hockey riots. Now, most Vancouverites remember the 2011 Stanley Cup riots in our city after the Canucks lost in Game 7 on home ice to the Boston Bruins. Well, a new documentary explores the riot that followed that loss. I'm Just Here for the Riot is directed by local filmmakers Kat Jamie and Asia Youngman. You may remember Jamie's name as she has directed two basketball-themed documentaries in the past, including The Grizzly Truth about the departure of the Vancouver Grizzlies NBA franchise from our city and the 2018 release of The Search for Big Country. I'm Just Here for the Riot is a 30 for 30 documentary produced in conjunction with ESPN Films. Joining me now to discuss the new documentary is Vancouver filmmaker Kat Jamie. Kat, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Jazz. Uh, first question, I mean, there's so much to talk about here, but uh, what convinced you this was the next documentary for you? You know, I've always, um, I've actually always wanted to tell this story. Um, I met my co-director in 2018, and we both, uh, Asia Youngman, and we both, uh, you know, kind of, realized that this was a story that we wanted to tell in our careers if we were lucky enough. Um, You know, I was, we're both from Vancouver. I was uh, totally got swept up in the excitement of the playoffs in 2011. And like many Vancouverites was just, was heartbroken when, uh, you know, the city rioted um, after we lost. And it was just so, um, yeah, I was, I was deeply impacted by it because I just, I couldn't understand why and I needed to understand why. And, um, what happened afterward in the weeks and days after the riot when there was that, you know, there was, this is known as kind of the first social media witch hunt. Um, and that experience and, and watching that kind of unfold, you know, also didn't feel too good. So I, I knew that there was a story there. And as a filmmaker, you're kind of always looking for these stories that have, that are, that, that are multi-layered. And I just felt like this, um, this was a story that um, should be told. And in 2011, no one wanted to touch it. And so, when I met Asia in 2018 and we decided to work on it, um, you know, we started kind of working it in 2019, we figured that enough time had passed that, you know, maybe it is, you know, time to tell the story. Maybe people will feel, will be, uh, you know, feel a bit better about um, talking about their experience, you know, 10 years later. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a lot of uh, attention during and after uh, that evening of, you know, um, uh, young people, uh, too much drinking, poor planning, potentially by police, all those types of things. Uh, that was the obvious analysis, of course. What did you learn uh, from your research and talking mm-hmm. to some of those that were involved? Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a very co- complex um, situation. There is a lot of things that kind of had to happen and, and to sort of have all the ingredients uh, for a riot, obviously it was, it's still a very kind of embarrassing thing, you know, Vancouver, we rioted, it wasn't like there was, you know, some, uh, like, moral cause that we were fighting for, it, it was, we lost uh, the Stanley Cup playoffs, and, and we rioted, but there, it is still, you know, it's, I don't, I still don't think it's as black and white, that's kind of what we learned, there's just a lot of things, a lot of factors that came into play, and in fact, social media, was one of these big factors, and social media um, is one of the themes, the main theme, I, I would say, that we explore in the film. People have to remember that in 2011, Facebook was fairly new, um, and, you know, everyone was going downtown, um, maybe out of curiosity, because they had heard a riot was, was kind of, you know, going to happen, and people went downtown to take photos, 
to post online, um, not realizing that they were incriminating themselves, um, or or even those you know uh, bystanders who who didn't do anything but were just there to take photographs, they were actually making it way more difficult for the you know police to do their job, um, and uh, just made the whole downtown even more congested. Hmm. Um, the people that you talked to that were involved uh, directly or indirectly. It, what is that day that what occurred that day still having an impact on their lives? Yes, um, that was another thing that we learned. It was, it was, it was very unfortunate um, and and sad. You know, Asia and I didn't want to, um, you know, we we didn't want um, to shift any blame. Um, you know, we we didn't want to point fingers, but we also you know wanted people to be held accountable. But that was one of the the, the sad realities that we did learn is that you know ten years later. And um, a lot of these folks, um, you know, still either, you know, um, feel the impact of their actions back in the day. There's, you know, there's some who had just turned 18 and it really set the tone for the rest of their lives, you know. So so now, 10 years later, it's still affecting them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you were, I think, in film school at that time or just graduated. And, and, my, and I think you had mentioned you did go down there with a camcorder, did you not, that, that, that night? No, sorry. So I, I, I went downtown the next day. Okay. Um, I was watching the game with my friends at home. Um, and we shot some hoops um, after, after, um, after the game ended and just to blow some steam because it, uh, it was a pretty, yeah, a pretty, uh, um, it was an emotional roller coaster watching the game. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when we started hearing, um, you know, rumblings online that there was a riot um, and, there was um, we we started to see, to hear smoke and 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 hear the you know the sirens. The next day, I went down downtown mm-hmm. um, with my camcorder. Some of the footage, there's just a few shots of mine that that are in the film from when I I went downtown and I was was outside the bay and I I just was trying to talk to everyone to try to make sense of uh, yeah, just to try to figure out find some answers as to what happened. Mm-hmm. Do you think something like that could happen again in this city, or do you think the lessons that are learned uh, would perhaps prevent some of that, not just those that were impacted directly, whether it be those that were arrested, those whose businesses were destroyed, but just a broader message and what people have saw that night and it's been sort of seared in our memories as, as Vancouverites and British Columbians. Do you think something like that that would happen again here in the city? Um, it's a great question. I, I'd like to think... No, but I but there's like an asterisk, and that's only if we, you know, actually learn from our mistakes and actually figure out what happened. And that's, I guess, one of the reasons why Asia and I were really keen to tell this story. Um, we both felt that that this story kind of got, you know, the event kind of got swept under the rug, and we we haven't actually had this like community discussion about what actually happened, and 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 um, you know. In 1994, you know, we we rioted in 1994, um, and you know, a lot of you know, the, the next generation rioted in 2011, and will the next generation riot again when the Canucks make it to the playoffs the next time? Who knows? Um, I think that we can prevent that if we we you know retell these ugly stories so that we can learn from them and we don't forget them.
We are speaking to Kat Jamie. She's a director of I'm Just Here for the Riot, a new documentary that looks at the 2011 Stanley Cup riots uh, in our city after the Canucks lost in Game 7 on home ice to the Boston Bruins. Uh, the uh, documentary itself is also directed by Asia Youngman. Um, Kat, tell me, uh, how did you end up meeting your fellow filmmaker, Asia Youngman? Yeah, we met in 2018. We both had films playing at the Vancouver National Film Festival. Mm-hmm. And we just became instant friends. And when we had, we were hanging out after VIF and talking about, you know, kind of dream projects, um, stories we would want to tell. And we both um, started talking about 2011, the 2011 Vancouver hockey riot. And, um, you know, I, we, we both, both really wanted to tell this story. And we thought how cool would it be if we tag teamed it together and told it, you know, and collaborated on this project together. Mm-hmm. Um, and you were, uh, obviously it was announced a while back that this documentary is part of um, the well-known brand of ESPN's 30 for 30 documentary. Uh, when that mm-hmm. was first announced, what was that like for you? I mean, that is a, a well-known brand when it comes to doing great documentaries mm-hmm. and for a, for a, a very well-known sports network, but they do great work in many cases getting behind the initial sports story and telling the broader story. I mean, what was that like when they first talked to you about this particular doc? Yeah, I mean, when we got greenlit, um, it was one of the... Asia and I were just over the moon. We always wanted it to be a 30 for 30. Um, I've I've been a huge fan of 30 for 30 since uh, I was in film school and university. I think they came... It started, the, the first season, I think, might have been in 2009, and... I've been a huge 30 for 30 nerd. I've, it, this is sort of like the ultimate dream uh, for me has always been to direct a 30 for 30. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a dream come true, and it's, it's an honor to, uh, to be able to share this with Asia. And, uh, yeah, we both feel very lucky to, uh, to have ESPN come on board and, and support our vision. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, last time we talked, of course, uh, we were talking about basketball, your past documentary. You're mm-hmm. known for uh, your love and fascination with the Vancouver Grizzlies and basketball in general. Yeah. So I'm not going to let you get away without a few basketball questions. Um, we're <laughs> talking right. about uh, NBA expansion to be, uh, you know, they're going to announce mm-hmm. a few more cities. The, 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 right now, the conversation is probably Seattle and Las Vegas will get expansion teams mm-hmm. or even talk about potentially Mexico City. Vancouver's name is, of course, thrown in there. Uh, but, uh, you know, prices for N- NBA franchises are now somewhere between 3 and $5 billion. Phoenix Sun sold uh, mm-hmm. within that range. Way more than when the Grizzlies started, that's for sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. I'm curious, do you think um, we have a chance, perhaps not this time, but eventually we will one day be home to an NBA franchise once again? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm obviously super-duper hopeful. Um, you know, I might be a grandma when that <laughs> happens, but uh, I, I really do hope, um, you know, Vancouver, it's great to see um, Vancouver on the list. I, You know, I do agree that Seattle deserves, deserves a team, but right after Seattle, I think Vancouver should should be the next city to be, you know, spoken about. I also will say, would say that I would love for the WNBA to come to Vancouver um, so, you know, WNBA, NBA, I'd be happy with either. Yeah. I'm curious, have you watched the Vancouver Bandits play out in Langley? I have, yes. They do They do such a great job, and it's great to have, uh, you know, um, another a local team to cheer for in our own backyard. 
Yeah, I was. I took my son uh, as a while back, but I was so impressed because the game was close. It was a lot of fun. I did invite them onto the show. And mm. We had a good con- conversation. I think they're doing great out there, and I think it's a great venue. But it does. Mm-hmm. It sort of brought back memories of watching Grizzlies play here, and I hope one day, for just sure. like you, it does come here sooner rather than later. Yeah, that, that's for sure. All right. Well, let's get all the basic information out here. Where can fans watch this documentary on the Stanley Cup riots? Um, so I would highly recommend you come out to VIF because this film won't be um, the ESPN will not release it until next summer. Mm-hmm. So you have three chances to watch it right now. So. Um, Tonight is our Vancouver premiere, 6.30 at the Playhouse. We are sold out online, but you can uh, um, wait in line on the standby line to try to get in. We have another screening at the Park Theatre, October 5th. That is also sold out online, um, but standby tickets are available. But you can, uh, we still have tickets available for our October 8th screening at 12.45 p.m. at the Vancouver Playhouse. And I highly recommend everyone get their tickets ASAP because we will sell out as well. Okay, so October tonight, by the way, uh, which is uh, sold out, but uh, hopefully there's some uh, tickets available if you come at the door. So October 2nd, 5th, and 8th. October. Right? Yeah, October 2nd, 5th, 5 and 8th. Yeah, yes, at the Vancouver Playhouse. Uh, and it'll be playing next summer uh, on ESPN. But it, 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 uh, if you want to watch it here in Vancouver sooner rather than later, get out there and pick up your tickets, particularly for. October 8th. Kat, as always, a huge fan. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Jazz. The fall legislative session begins tomorrow, and there's lots of issues uh, that uh, elected officials will be looking at, from housing to climate change to public safety and a new party in the House. Usually the spring and summer, spring session is the longest, but the fall session is very important, particularly around housing when you look at, um, you know, the issue of secondary suites being legalized throughout the province, even the talk about Airbnbs and banning them or potentially bringing in rules, making it a lot tougher for them. Uh, It's going to be a very busy session. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the fall session is uh, Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, welcome. Hey, Jess. So let's talk about, uh, well, I guess we should start with the party. Another party uh, will be sitting in the legislature uh, starting tomorrow, the B.C. Conservatives. What impact do you think that's going to have in just a broader conversation, the tone and debate? Oh, I think it could have a significant impact. This is, um, we now have three, we will now have three opposition parties represented. That is the most in almost 30 years. You have to go back to 1995, the dying days of that of that parliament you you had the social credit party had imploded and split into two with several of them becoming bc reform mlas and one lone socred remaining then you had the bc liberals actually fractured as well with gordon wilson leaving the party and creating his short-lived party called the pda or progressive democratic alliance so we actually had five parties back then for opposition. Now we're going to have three. And the divide between the BC United and the BC Conservatives is a very personal one, because the BC Conservatives have two members who are former members of the BC United Caucus, or their precursor, the BC Liberal Caucus. And it's, you know, John Rustad was expelled from the caucus by party leader Kevin Falcon, went over to the Conservatives. Then Bruce Banman, a rookie MLA from Abbotsford South, decided to join Rustad over a number of issues, and now they've got official party status, which means they're on a par with the B.C. Greens. They can ask questions in question periods. So John Rustad will be on his feet tomorrow morning about 10.30, 
just after uh, the BC United kicks off, probably with Kevin Falcon asking the first couple questions, and and uh, another, and probably Todd Stone, the government house or the opposition house leader. Then Sonia Furston, the leader of the Greens, will ask her two questions, and then Russell gets a kick at it, and that's going to be a daily occurrence in question period. So question period frames much of the media coverage that comes out of out of the legislature. So Russell suddenly can take the Conservatives from absolute oblivion to some sort of profile, and that's going to be at the expense of BC United. So I think there's going to be a bit of tension there. Mm-hmm. Um, and look for the NDP to gleefully exploit this whenever they can, because, of course, it's in their interest to see a schism develop on the opposition benches. And there certainly is one right now between BC Conservative and the BC United. Mm-hmm. Uh, how much of this is just Pierre Polyev's popularity, which the BC Conservatives are sort of getting, you know, some of the bump from that, uh, and partially just it's just uh, you know people are confused in regards to who the Free Enterprise Party is. I think it's more the latter. I think there's definitely a bit of a rub-off from Polyev. Mm -hmm. But if that was the case, why are Manitoba's conservatives about to go down election defeat? You know, you'd argue that maybe they should benefit, too, from any uh, uptick in the conservative brand Mm -hmm. uh, federally. But I'm sure there's a bit of that. But the other thing, to your other point about the confusion... I do think people do not know who BC United is. It's it's not a name they're familiar with, not a name they've really heard before. Um, and the challenge for that party is to become known to such an extent that they will replace the BC Liberals in people's minds as the Free Enterprise Coalition. But now that you've got the Conservatives in the House uh, elevated with an elevated profile, and now that you've got a series of polls we've seen, and there'll probably be more polls that show the BC Conservatives are actually ahead or tied with BC United in voter preference, that's going to continue to give a boost to the BC, United, BC Conservative Party at the expense of BC United. So I think the BC United has a real challenge, and that's to get its brand out there, and they've made no effort so far to do that. I mean, they had two terrible by-election losses. In writings, they weren't going to win anyways, but still to finish behind the B.C. Conservatives in one is is troubling for them. So uh, I think uh, and that's going to add a little bit of spice to this session that we haven't seen before. Yeah, and, uh, you know, people say, well, you know, there's probably an ad campaign they can raise their profile. And having worked with the LNG industry in the past and being, uh, you know, very closely involved with, uh, you know, communication strategy and, and having to buy, you know, do, you know, six, seven figure uh, ad buys. Uh, not only do you need the dollars, number one, which is very difficult to raise in, a, in, in this type of environment for any political party, never mind the opposition, but you also need a runway. You need time. You can't just do mm-hmm. it in, in six months, even a year sometimes. You've got to yep. go two, three, four, sometimes even five years to consistently drive well, a message down. And then they don't have the runway at the moment. No, they don't. And you and I went through a big rebrand ourselves, Jazz, if you recall. We were both working for BCTV, mm-hmm. huge brand in, in this province as, a, as the number one television station. TV for BC, the Dogwood uh, symbol. We were extremely well known as a station. Then we were bought by Global, and we were kind of freaking out. How do we go from being BCTV, this massive brand, to a relatively lesser known brand much lesser known brand and it took i think it took us two years to do that and what i recall what we did we did not lose the bctv name we simply wedded it to the global name for at least a year so people were making the transition in their minds oh so bctv is now global okay Mm -hmm. i get it that was hammered home again and again that was our logo on the screen was bctv on global 
And that took a good year um, before we got to the point where we could suddenly shed the BC TV name. And these guys are starting cold. There's no mention that the BC United used to be the BC Liberals or that there's any history there whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're just relying on people to remember that Kevin Falcon and Shirley Bond and Mike DeYoung, oh, yeah, they were the BC Liberals that I voted for. And that's a tough thing to do uh, in this in this media landscape. And partially, I think it is the core question since the BC United, BC Liberals have been in opposition, is their inability to come back with a core story of who they are and why they exist uh, beyond just let's keep the socialist hordes out. That was generally the the, the message. But they, they, they've been unable, to, I think, to modernize. I think they're trying, but it's very difficult to have a core message as to why, who you are and what you are. So the, it's a sense of identity for them as well. Like, what do you stand for that isn't conservative, that's different from the NDP? And that's really tough to do, as I said, not, as you say, not within a one-year window as well, but they still haven't answered that, I think, that core question for themselves. Well, I mean, it's very tough to be an opposition party, an effective opposition party. And, you know, don't underestimate the challenge that comes with opposition because it's a very frustrating situation. Nothing you do actually has any impact. But when you're in government, you can define yourself much easier because you're actually doing things that have an impact directly, if not immediately, on people's lives. You, you bring in laws that fundamentally change something. Um, they can be popular or unpopular, but you do things uh, sort of action-oriented, and so you can define yourself very well. Opposition, you don't control the agenda. The government controls the agenda. You're always reacting to another force. And when you're always reacting, usually in a negative way, it's tough to establish that identity. And that's why the NDP had a tough time in opposition for a number of years until they finally made that breakthrough in 2017 uh, on a bit of an electoral fluke, uh, got power with the partnership of the Greens, and then was able to run the table in 2020. And now sits very uh, poised to do it again unless the opposition gets their gets their message together but i just i think it's a very challenging time to be an opposition party in this province Mm -hmm. and it's made even more challenging when you've got three of them in the house now all fighting for oxygen oxygen uh, limited supply of oxygen all fighting to get their voice heard as the alternative to the government side and history in bc shows when the opposition is divided on that side of the political spectrum the NDP can win with a relatively smaller share of the popular vote in terms of winning seats. We are speaking to Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. We're talking about the fall legislative session beginning tomorrow in Victoria. We're talking about a new party getting official party status under the BC Conservatives. Let's talk about some of the specific policies we should be looking for in regards to legislation. Uh, Let's start with housing first and foremost. Uh, Keith, uh, what can we expect yeah, I'm told there's going to be four bills. Um, Ravi Kalin, the House Housing Ministry, last week talked about uh, such things as uh, changing to zoning rules for municipalities. Uh, the province is going to step in there, I think, curb municipal powers when it comes to zoning for housing. Uh, there's going to be something on short-term rentals, i.e. Airbnb, about uh, changing the rules on that. I think there's going to be one dealing with um, creating secondary suites, uh, being allowed, again, over some municipal objections to have secondary seats within their boundaries, um, and one more. So four housing bills. Uh, there's going to be, I think, legislation regarding the wildfire um, management situation, not the overhaul of the Emergency Program Act, which I think is coming next spring, because they're in the midst of a consultation process with that. But there are going to be some changes about uh, uh, local uh, involvement, I think, in wildfires. Uh, there's going to be some changes around the ongoing decriminalization of drug issue. Mm-hmm. Look for an expansion, potentially, of curbing 
the areas in which you can consume drugs that have been decriminalized. And then the one that's not getting a lot of attention, but I think is a, is a biggie, because it goes to an issue we've talked about before many times. Many people mm-hmm. talked about it, about doctors and nurses that get trained in other countries cannot perform their professions when they're here. There's going to be a bill in the House that goes well beyond those two professions, and it's, it's, it's the criteria for all professions of, of immigrants who have been trained um, in fully you know, credible institutions in other countries are going to be able to more smoothly practice their craft, their profession in BC. And again, it goes well beyond just doctors and nurses, but other healthcare professions, other professions that have a, a level of expertise, that's, the way is going to be smooth for them to work in those professions rather than the proverbial story of the doctor from you know, an African country who's working as a cab driver because he's not being allowed to practice medicine. So that's another big bill that's coming as well. So I'm told a little more than 12 bills. Well, you know, just to that latter point, uh, you know, when they did open up some of those, uh, looking at looking at, the, you know, folks from foreign nations coming here, I mean, in Ontario, I think even here in BC, when they said, look, we are going to do things differently when it comes to credentials, they found foreign nurses. And guess where they found them in Ontario? In Ontario. Where did they find yeah. them in BC? In BC. So we have people in these communities, never mind coming from from abroad in these communities that haven't ha- that have the potential to become registered nurses, but we've never ever got to that point where we're saying, okay, how do we get you folks trained uh, so you're ready to go as soon yeah, as possible? And so right? Yeah, it's already started on nursing. Um, we had a report out last week. One of the at the briefing we got from uh, Minister Dix and Bonnie Henry was disclosed that about 420 nurses already from other countries have been um, certified in BC are now working, and I think. Well, more than a thousand wow. more are through the process. So, I think we're starting to get some progress on nurses, but it's other professions as well, even outside the healthcare uh, profession. I mean, the post-secondary minister Selena Robinson is going to be bringing in a pretty hefty bill that's pretty far-reaching on a number of professions. Uh, let's go back to the housing uh, issue for a moment. I, I get the zoning changes. I talk about short-term rentals. I think everybody's looking f- f- uh, to forward to see that because the Airbnb and a lot of these short-term rentals have just gotten out of control and it's impacting local people secondary suites and uh, to be legalized throughout the province. Is this going to have any impact on renting in the city of Vancouver, Victoria? You know, I know it's very high in Victoria here. It's $3,000 a month, yeah. if not a little bit higher. Is this going to have any impact on on that? I've, I've been skeptical for a long time on fixing the housing uh, crisis because as long as we have, you know, 150,000 people, 175,000 people moving to BC every year, most of them locating in three areas. 95% of the people who come in are going to Metro Vancouver, which means the suburbs, and the Okanagan, specifically Kelowna, Penticton, and the capital region here. And so it's already putting continuous pressure on just dealing with the additions, let alone the status quo, the people who were, have been here for a couple of years and still can't find something affordable to live, let alone a newcomer. So, sorry, I'm still taking the pessimistic view that this housing situation is not going to be resolved in any meaningful way for quite a while. It's going to take some time. Even the government's, you know, I, the quarterly report was out last week. I have a column on it out today in the North Shore News, and it, I point out that even the government's own quarterly report, buried in there is their analysis of housing. And the bureaucrats, the civil servants in finance, estimate that the number of housing units, new housing units to be built next year, is going to be 10% less than the housing built this year. So that's a decline in one year rather than an addition. It does mean more housing, more than 40,000 units will be built, but that's a decline from 46,000 units this year. 
Now, finance often underestimates these numbers and they end up exceeding the targets, but that just shows you the depth of the problem that with an economic slowdown on the horizon, according to the quarterly report, there's less economic activity, less construction, the impact of high interest rates and still a, a a worrisome inflation rate that's gone down, but it's still much higher than it was a decade ago, just slows everything down. And that could potentially slow down some housing construction. So uh, changing the rules is great, but, you know, it's going to take a lot, I think, to have a meaningful impact to bring those rents from $3,000 a month down to 1500 That could take a long time. Yeah, absolutely. I got 20 seconds left. Fall, uh, fall 20, uh, our 2024 election is the official date. You're not expecting any sort of early election call in your mind? No, but I'll tell you, if these polls continue to show a real serious split between the B.C. United and B.C. Conservatives on that side of the... If that becomes just permanent, then you got to figure David e, the Premier David Eby's trigger finger can get a little itchy and maybe go early. But I think he's still going to go in the fall of 2024. Yeah, these numbers are just... I mean, a, a couple more of these polls, and boy, uh, oh. the, I, I, mean, I, the, I can't believe MLAs aren't doing cartwheels in the legislature well, already. If you're still the potential to do that. You never know. Yeah, exactly. Keith, thank you. All right, take care. Well, we typically think of breast cancer as a woman's disease, but although it happens rarely, men can get breast cancer too, and they may not be aware of their risk. Our next guest knows that all too well. Lori Ricks lost her husband to cancer that started in his breast. Her husband, Neil, is well known to CKNW listeners and sports fans in this city. We're, of course, talking about Neil McRae, a legendary broadcaster who never held back uh, when, it come, when it came to his opinions and when it came to sports uh, in this city. Now, take a listen to some of Neil's thoughts on sports, broadcasting, and our Vancouver Canucks. If, if people don't have a reaction one way or the other towards you, you're probably out of work. Here's Neil McRae. It's games like that that makes you understand why Elvis shot so many televisions. That was just plain old-fashioned bad hockey. And I just always felt that if you're going to go on and do a sports cast or, or do something, then you have to do something that is going to stand out and be entertaining. It's one thing to lose. Is something else not to at least put on some kind of a show. You done? This is the best part of your show so far. You done? No. You're listening to the major sports on NW. I'm doing this show. All I'm saying is this is either going to be a very short show or the last show, or we may as well end it now. We'll sort this out tomorrow, like I said. Well, let's do this publicly. Why not? People should be have a right to know. No, they don't vote on this, Neil. And you don't make this decision. This decision will be made by NW management. Let's talk about hockey. Well, I want to talk about this because this has got me rather upset because I am not used well, to... I don't really life. care if you're upset well, or not. Yeah, well, I do because this is my show. Yeah, it's your show. That is the late, great Neil McRae, uh, at times very acerbic on the air, uh, very opinionated, but I might add, uh, having worked uh, here at NW in the early 90s, a complete gentleman off the air as well. Joining me now is Laurie Ricks, president of the Ricks Family Foundation and wife of the late Neil McRae. Laurie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Um, you know, to come out and talk about this issue um, certainly uh, is very important. Uh, when did you become, convince yourself, or just when did you convince yourself, I guess, at the end of the day, that it was time to talk about some of this stuff? Well, because I think it. my father was a doctor, and I had never known that men could get breast cancer. And mm-hmm. so when he showed me in 2015 that he had a lump on his chest, mm-hmm. it was about the size of a golf ball, wow. uh, which if you're a woman... 
something the size of a pea would be scary to you because there's so much good education for women and awareness, but for men. And I thought, well, maybe it's just a benign cyst or something. But I said, you have to go and see your doctor. Mm -hmm. Went to saw his doctor. Doctor said, well, just go for an ultrasound just to see. And unfortunately, that very day, she said, yes, it's breast cancer. And when he came home and we got over the initial shock and he started to tell his friends and family, every single one of them said, oh, he said, I've been diagnosed with cancer. They said, oh, prostate. Because he was over 60. Mm -hmm. And so they just thought, oh, it must be prostate cancer. And when he said breast cancer, none of them could believe it. They were all just speechless because men don't think they have breast tissue, Mm -hmm. but they do. Uh, So it was just overwhelmingly shocking. And to be honest, I think he was a bit embarrassed by it Mm -hmm. just because it just it's not not anything that uh, we knew about. None of our friends knew anything about. So I thought it was important uh, to get the message out. If there's anything that changes in your body, Mm -hmm. men typically aren't great about going to the doctor. But yeah. If there's anything that changes in your body and it stays around for a while, go and get it checked out. It's probably not going to be anything serious, Mm -hmm. but then at least you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because he obviously had left this for quite some time because it was stage three when Mm -hmm. he was diagnosed and it already spread into his lymph nodes. So he had the same treatment as a woman would have, a mastectomy, chemotherapy, radiation. He went through all of that. Um, So it uh, it was a tough journey for him. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and I guess this is what's driving you now to make sure every man out there, in fact, everybody, it is Breast Cancer Awareness Month in October, you get out there and get yourself checked out. Exactly. Because this was 2015. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, COVID obviously dominated the last few years, uh, but there still isn't any good education and awareness out there about this in general. Um, and there should be, even though it is rare. But last year in Canada, almost 300 men were diagnosed with breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So, and the year before it was around 200. So it is increasing. They're not sure, PC cancer is not sure why yet, but they have noticed it. Uh, obviously, they'll have to study the reasons why. Mm-hmm. But if it's your loved one, then of course it's very important to you that they find out, you know, research. And I fund a hereditary, Neil McRae Hereditary Research Fund at the BC Cancer Agency, mm-hmm. where there's an amazing doctors working on all sorts of DNA testing and sequencing to try and narrow down who has the, bracket, the BRCA gene, which Neil was diagnosed with because he had to be genetically tested. Mm-hmm. And as a result of that, it's very common for men to also get prostate cancer, which he did develop eventually. Mm-hmm. So it's important to identify these men early and find out before maybe they even have any symptoms of any sort of cancer. Do you know of any program that's being created in regards to just awareness? Um, I'm glad you're here today. Is there any program through the cancer agency, government, or even our healthcare system that they're focusing on that? No. I, no, I, I'm not aware of anything. That's why I set up the research fund at VC Cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, cancer is such, uh, there's so many cancers out there. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it is rare, and the rare ones tend to get less attention. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's why I was so happy that... Uh, I'm on your show today. Just if one man hears it and has noticed something different, they go to the doctor. I know Neil would want that. And uh, I'd be very gratified as well. Um, To get that diagnosis is incredibly stressful for an individual, for a family. Uh, And I know Neil to be very brave. um, But I mean, it it must have been so tough just that initial diagnosis and then having to go through that journey of trying to, to fight it. It definitely was because, you know, we all know those of us who remember listening to Neil, he was a guy's guy, you know, he was a rough and tumble guy's guy. And so for him to get something that is, you know, associated with women, 
um, was a real knock for him. It was very, very tough. At first, he didn't want to tell anyone. But then, you know, his family and I sort of said, well, you don't want this getting out in another way. It's better if you tell your close friends and sort of manage it that way. Um, and then he accepted it, and he had excellent treatment at BC Cancer. His oncologist, Karen Gellman, is mm -hmm. world-renowned, and she did an amazing job of giving him the right information and um, just speaking to him in a very simple way, good bedside manner, mm -hmm. uh, really calmed his nerves and uh, really helped him through the process. It is amazing, you know, that uh, we do have great uh, healthcare professionals, great technology. Of course, we need to continue to do more research. But that early detection is so, so important. It really is. And again, I go back to if it was a woman who had found something the size of a golf ball, they wouldn't, yeah. most women would not let it get that far away from them. And I was so stunned, but I knew he was concerned. And so I really hid my feelings and said, oh, it's probably nothing benign cyst, you know, not that I know, but just to calm him down because I was internally so alarmed and so scared to feel something that large. Yeah, we men do, and I think your point earlier is very true, we men do not go to the doctor. You almost have to be pushed to go. <laughs> I'm not sure if we're just genetically predisposed to be that stubborn. <laughs> well, I think men think, oh, it'll go away. <laughs> and if it doesn't go away, then that means you should go to the doctor. I know, I'm, I'm like that. I, my wife is constantly pushing me to get it, check up, the yearly checkup, and I just, you know, leave it until the point, she'll make the appointment, this is your day, you're going to go get on with it, right? Good, so, exactly, <laughs> which that's is exactly. A, which is a good thing. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about just uh, post-NW with, with Neil. Um, did he miss daily broadcasting? I'm always curious. Uh, he did miss, uh, yeah, he did. He missed um, because he always had the editorial late at 15 and yeah. he loved putting that together. And uh, there was a lot of people that hated what he said and a lot of people that loved it. In fact, somebody came up, um, was selling mugs online saying, I hate Neil McRae and the other ones are, I love Neil McRae. So he was very divisive, but as you sort of said, you know, earlier, he, he said, if, you're, if people aren't talking about you around the water cooler, then, you know, you don't have that impact. Mm -hmm. they're listening, they want to hear what you have to say, even if they hate what you have to say, yeah. um, but at least they're listening. And so he really, from the beginning of his career, you learn from people above him, you need to develop a shtick, a showbiz, a thing, have your own own approach. And, uh, and he loved doing that. And you're right, he wasn't that uh, argumentative and whatnot in real life, but he loved doing that on the air and he loved having a strong opinion and, and not being a fence sitter, as he used to call it. <laughs> no, I mean, he'd have uh, the, the conversation in the morning with, with Frosty, uh, with Bill Good, they would go at it. I remember even with Wally Opal one time. They went at it. <laughs> <laughs> Supreme and they were friends too. And they were friends and they went at it on the air. Uh, and then I think um, certainly as we heard uh, at the beginning of this segment, uh, his relationship with Brian Burke, they were, uh, they went at it. I mean, that's, that's stuff you heard uh, in, at the beginning of this segment. Uh, that's how that relationship was sometimes, very chippy. Oh, yes. Uh, he came home and he was very angry after that, angry with Brian for that. Um, luckily, the, it took some time, but they did rebuild their friendship and uh, Brian came to Neil's celebration of life. So everything ended up ended up in a good place but uh yeah there was quite a bit of animosity for a while <laughs> <I'm> sure <laughs> but they're both both uh, good men so that's great to hear uh Lori, thank you for coming in this is such an important important message uh that uh, men need to be uh, going in and get a diagnosis go regularly to the doctor 
Uh, when we talk about breast cancer, it impacts both genders as well. So thank you so much, Say, for coming in. Well, thank you so much for having me, Jess. That is Lori Ricks, president of the Ricks Family Foundation, wife of the late Neil McRae. Before we go to break, I'm going to leave you with another 30 seconds of Neil McRae uh, and, of course, our good friend from the Vancouver Sun, Brian Burke. Uh, Vancouver Canucks. Sorry, Brian Burke. Take a listen. Uh, this is little Orca Bay power play or a Brian no, this Burke is, power this, play? No, I think it's common sense and professionalism, which obviously you're short on and you're determined to air it out now. Oh, we will so sort I, this I, out it's tomorrow. It's not professional being honest and going on the radio and if, if we're having an argument. It's not professional to, to cut and paste a one-hour radio show and put the bits that you think are amusing or interesting on the air out of context. What was out of context? Are we going to talk about hockey? This is part of hockey. No, it's this not. This is about show. your ego and your morning ratings. Now, are we going to talk nothing about the Canucks my or not? ego. It's got nothing to do with my ego. I'm asking you. I'm asking you if we're going to talk about hockey. I don't have to explain anything. I'm asking you if we're going to talk about hockey or not. Oh, we will be. Okay, let's go. Hadeep Singh Nidger was shot to death uh, in Surrey on June 8th. 18th. He, of course, uh, was shot at the temple grounds in the Scott Road Sikh Temple in Surrey. Three months later, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau made an explosive allegation when he said that Ottawa believed the Indian government uh, had involvement in Mr. Nidger's killing. The conversation in and around uh, this death is about the independent state of Khalistan. Joining me now is our producer, Ryan Lee Hall, to talk a little bit about Khalistan and why it's so relevant to uh, Sikh Canadians. Ryan, welcome. Hey, Kadajas. How's it going? <laughs> it's going very well. I know uh, this conversation, most people say, look, I've heard the conversation on Khalistan, but why is there such, um, uh, I guess, a conversation around it, most importantly, but what hold does Khalistan have among some Sikhs uh, in British Columbia and throughout the the diaspora. For sure. And I think that's really what I wanted to find out. You know, for me in particularly when I've ever thought of Khalistan or it's ever been mentioned within Canadian media, a big portion of it that's always missing is like, why is it actually important? Why does it matter to everyday Canadians? Why does it matter to sick Canadians here living in the West as well? And I did do some research and I found someone who I thought could really speak on it. And his name is Dr. Anok Singh Delon. He is currently completing his final year of residency in family practice at UBC. He graduated with a bachelor's degree in interdisciplinary studies focusing on Asian history. And this is the big one here. He wrote an op-ed that was published in the Toronto Star in 2018 explaining the relevance of Khalistan to Sikh Canadians. And I started off by asking him, essentially, why are people protesting today? What are they advocating for? I think that's a great question. It, it really stems from 1984 and the grievances that came from there. So we already know about kind of Operation Blue Star, which was the attack on the Golden Temple complex. We know about the November genocide that occurred where six were openly killed on the streets for three days by the Indian population in mob massacres. And so there's a huge sense of grievances that comes from that time period. And so when Sikhs are protesting or Khalistanis are protesting, it is kind of to show retaliation for what happened during that time period. That's very, um, uh, it's very strong in people's memories of what happened. And that's a type of um, grievance that hasn't been fully addressed by the system. And so Khalistan is an extension of that type of protest and retaliation. So when they are protesting, it depends kind of on who you ask. So if you're talking about people in the leadership capacity, people like Six for Justice or these types of groups, I think to them it, it, it does represent a very real movement and something to aspire towards as getting a sovereign independent state. And the methods that Khalistanis are choosing now 
is to use democratic means and freedom of expression. That wasn't the case back in the 80s and 90s where people did have to resort to armed struggle or that's what they thought at the time was needed. But nowadays it's using that freedom of expression. We're talking about the common people that kind of are protesting. Um, I would say, again, it goes back to everyone having their own perspective and relationship with Khalistan. Some people are doing it to try to address those wrongs that were done and to raise their voice for that. And others are, are seeing it as the same way that the leadership is, which is that, no, we actually do want to get our own country from that. We There's the historical precedent of the Sikh empire and have, having had a sovereign Sikh state before the British came. And that is something that they want to aspire back towards. And so that, uh, I would say, are some of the perspectives that people have when they're protesting. I wanted to ask you as well about the push that we've seen from Western Sikh youth in being involved in activism or, uh, if you want to call it, the Khalistan movement. Uh, Again, for myself, born and raised in Surrey, I'm 30 years old. My family and I have never really talked about it, my parents or my grandparents. And it wasn't ever anything we ever saw in, you know, everyday Western media uh, growing up. I noticed maybe around 2012, 2013-ish, you did kind of start to see it pop up around social media, uh, especially on YouTube and Instagram. Uh, A lot of the times as well, coming out of Ontario, you had the whole Win Lions Roar events pop up as well throughout Southern Ontario. Uh, Different Punjabi Sikh YouTubers and musicians, they were actively discussing uh, Khalistan and sort of Sikh rights in general as well. Uh, Within that last five years, we've also seen a real, you know, push from our own youth, uh, meaning those people in their young 20s and teenagers being involved in sort of that activism. Now, what in your mind has pulled youth today in North America uh, towards advocating for those sick causes? I think there's multiple answers to that question and multiple reasons. Firstly, I would say that it starts with our older generation uh, and them being willing to talk about what happened. So many Sikhs, their parents or their forefathers were affected by what happened in 84, but they didn't want to talk about it. Kind of similar to how our great grandparents and grandparents didn't want to talk about the partition. So I think um, as the new youth kind of growing up in the diaspora, there's a natural curiosity in terms of the land of our forefathers and the history there and trying to connect to that culture and that identity. And through that, people are going to study about their history. And in doing so, we start discovering kind of these things, these grievances of Operation Blue Star and Khalistan movement. What is this thing? And so there was this natural curiosity. It's interesting you mentioned 2012, 2013, because that's kind of when the Bulvan Singh Dajwana international protests were happening. And I think that was probably, I vividly remember, because I grew up in Syria as well, that there being a huge shift of suddenly, you know, before that time period, I vividly remember when it, actually Guru Nanak said Gurdwara, there was a different Gurdwara committee that would actually host Indian Independence Day parades in the parking lot during 2005, 2006. And now you look at the change of what's happened with the history. And so Khalistan was treated as a bad word before that 2012, 2013. And something just awoke in people, I think, when they heard about this political prisoner, Bhavan Singh Majwana, who had, uh, was part of the uh, plan to assassinate the chief minister, Bhavan Singh in Punjab. And people just kind of, something I think as you can call it a sixth spirit or whatever it awoken people to kind of at least try to learn more about what happened in that history. And uh, and they were very inspired by the stance that he was taking, which was he refused to recognize the Indian system, refused to recognize the Indian justice court. He was such an adamant Khalistani and people were kind of inspired by that and the sacrifice that he had done by being there and, and um, accepting what he had done and what were the reasons he had done it. And so um, there's been a shift since then. So I think, you know, and kind of with with youth culture, there's 
we're in that phase of rebellion. You're in that phase of wanting to learn more, going against the system, against the institution. I don't want to minimize it. I don't want to categorize it as that because I think there are very obvious legitimate reasons why Khalistan is needed. But I think that there is this natural curiosity. The other reason is social media cannot be downplayed. Kind of, there's this, been this huge, you know, transmission with information. We, we have way more access than we did uh, before things like Instagram and Facebook came about. There were always just kind of like rogue Khalistan pages back in like 2005, 2006, like never forget June 84 and things like that, where you can maybe get snippets of information, but you have to search it up. Now it's kind of available at your fingertips. You can learn more about Palestine and learn more about the the Sikh movement and and political grievances. So um, I think you know every youth is trying to connect to it to a certain way. I'm not going to say they're all pro Palestine per se, but they want to learn more about it and they want to kind of gain that. And I think technology also has a has a has a big role in that. Palestine at its fundamental core is a struggle for sovereignty and independence from a Sikh perspective that in Punjab, there was oppression going on at the time, there were systemic inequalities, there were injustices. And uh, Khalistan, at its bare essence, is kind of exercising that right to self-determination and to pursue your own destiny. Khalistan has been incredibly vilified, obviously, by the Indian media and the Indian government. Um, and a lot of people, unfortunately, in the West as well, have accepted that rhetoric um, and equate kind of Khalistani separatist as to extremist and terrorist. And that's kind of, I mean, in a way, the Indian government it reveals its own sense of dehumanization, if you will, because there was adamant dehumanization that occurred um, during that time period, and even now in the press that you see with all the reports. And so, um, you know, at its bare essence, Khalistan is um, uh, a form of retaliation against what happened with the, with the history of Operation Blue Star in November 1984 and the disappearances that occurred from 84 to 1995. And so um, it's exercising that right to self-determination. Just to quickly put it in a Canadian perspective, you know, if someone in Quebec wanted to say, look, I want to separate, I'm not happy with Canada, there's no Canadian that's going to go and say, oh, you guys are terrorists, you're separatists, you're extremists. We kind of just shrug and say, OK, like, that's fine. Let's hold a referendum. And if a majority want to leave, they can leave. And it's, it seems like a pretty straightforward thing, but that's because we're a Western liberal democracy. In India, that's a completely foreign concept. That's not even in the equation. It's kind of if you're a separatist, you are automatically um, um, uh, labeled as a terrorist. So I think if there's only one one potential good thing that may have come out of the recent kind of expose that's occurred of Indian government potentially being involved, it's that the international world is finally seeing India for what it really is, which is uh, a very kind of autocratic state. That's a big thing as well, because I've seen it all over Twitter, where you do see different Indian bot accounts or nationalist accounts or just different, you know, people on Twitter from India. They do bring up Quebec a lot and they do say, hey, would Canada just let Quebec leave? And you go through the replies of that tweet and people reply to be like, hey, they've actually had referendums and they decided not to leave Canada. Uh, I think that's a really good point you do bring up in terms of advocating for the rights of Punjab and Punjabis. How would you sort of characterize that relationship between the Indian state and Punjab since, say, 1947's partition? Because, again, we do have to recognize that when the British drew up the borders of India, a large portion of the state of Punjab did end up in modern-day Pakistan. And even then, further so, India further split up Punjab on the Indian side, and they did create two new states out of it. So how would you describe the way the Indian government has sort of treated the state of Punjab where the majority of Sikhs lived since 1947. 
So to answer that question, you have to kind of start with what is India to begin with? It was an artificial conglomeration of hundreds of different states that the British had united. Okay, in 1947, now the thing is, if you look at even the founding fathers, Nehru and Mahatma Gandhi, they invoked a lot of Hindu nationalist rhetoric in their speeches during independence. This idea that Modi and the BJP are somehow this new wave that have suddenly come up and are trying to make India a more... Hindu fundamentalist type of state is not true. That's always been like that since the inception of India. It's only just being exposed more clearly now. Where does Punjab fit into this? What Indian government currently is doing right now is they are exposing the hypocrisy of Punjabis. Everyone, every Sikh is on a spectrum. Every Punjabi is on a spectrum of whether they support Khalistan or they're pro-India. And then a lot of people, I would argue, this is anecdotal, they're in the middle. They say, we believe in Punjab, we support Punjabi rights, if they come for our water, we're going to defend it. If they come for our farms, we're going to defend it. But we're not going to go so far as to say we support Khalistan. Now, I would argue and say that you, you that existing in that middle ground is very dangerous. And it's not something that India is happy with. Because India says if you are part of India, you believe in Bharat Mata, which is Mother India. And you, you must be loyal to Mother India. You cannot be loyal to Punjab. But if you ask most Punjabis on the street today or in Punjab, who are they going to be loyal to, India or Punjab? They're going to choose Punjab. So it's that hypocrisy that India is exposing. So I would argue that, you know, in my opinion, it's very clear that the logical conclusion is Khalistan. There is no other option. The question is, when will people kind of open their eyes to realize that that's going to be the case? Because if you look at Punjab right now, it, it's an extension of the Indian system. There's a lot of rampant corruption that goes on there. You and I already know that. There's rampant drug use that goes on there. We all know that what's going on there. We knew we know about the violent suppression that occurred in the 80s and 90s with the disappearances and extrajudicial murders. And so we know that there are problems that exist. So if we want to, but most people I would argue right now exist in that middle where they want to advocate for Punjab, they want to advocate for rights, they want to advocate for freedoms, but they don't want to go so far, they don't want to take it to its natural conclusion, they don't have the conviction to do so. So um, for me, it's a matter of kind of not if, but when people will realize that there is no future with the Indian state because India will always prioritize India over Punjab, which is something that as Punjabis, we cannot stand by. I believe that India, like I said before, going back to its inception, it's an artificial conglomeration of multiple states. So if you look at, if you study the movements currently going on in India, there's quite a few that are advocating for separation. You have Kashmir, you have the Maoists in Nagaland, and you also have very subtly the Tamils in the south who are quietly trying to get their own state. They have their own flag, they have their own culture, their own language, and they are a very powerful group, but they are doing it very subtly. So India is essentially founded on a lie because it's they try to force people to believe in one culture and one religion in one language. This is in the constitution itself where Sikhs, Jains, and Buddhists are seen as a subsection of Hindus. And so they are trying to create this uh, very artificial lie. And that's why they're so um, like emotional and passionate, if you will, and vindictive when it comes to the issue of separation, because they see, take, they look, you look at the terminology, it's uh, Khalistanis want to carve out Punjab out of India. And it's like, well, you can't carve it out. The Sikh empire existed before the British came. It was Punjab that was artificially attached to India. It's the, so it's about the terminology. It's about the way you look at things. And you need only look at the history to see kind of what the reality of the situation is. So they see it as dismemberment. If you take out Punjab, it's like taking out an arm of Mother India. And that's why they are so vitriolic when it comes to the issue of separatism, when it comes to dehumanizing the other. 
And um, that is what we, you know, as, as Khalistanis are fighting against. So uh, to answer your question, I believe it was like, do we actually, it, is it going to actually be a separate state? Yes, I think India will break up. My personal prediction is by 2047, so 100 years of India, I think it will. Um, and if you look at currently the way it's going with the BJP uh, and with Modi, people are more and more are kind of trying to go against it now because they're like, oh, we don't want this autocraticness. We don't want it to be a Hindu nationalist India. But he's only exposing what it always had been this whole time. And so I think there are going to be a lot of people that are disenfranchised with that, that don't want that. And so it's naturally going towards a breakup, similar to kind of how the Soviet Union was in the, in the 90s. So, yeah, that was a great interview with uh, Dr. Anouk St. Dillon. Again, I do want to say we probably spoke for another 10, 15 uh, minutes longer. And I did post a full interview. It is available on the Jazz Show Hall Show podcast. You can find it on Apple, on Spotify, or wherever you do get your podcasts. Uh, We did kind of get into the foreign interference aspect uh, from the Indian government in Canada and whether or not Six Feel finally maybe legitimatized uh, for, you know, finally being believed that, you know, maybe that India do have certain tactics that they do play with. Well, it's an, it's an ongoing conversation. You see it with China, and now India is part of that conversation, Russia as well. I'm glad we're doing that in Canada, actually looking at our security apparatus. It is a very complex issue. Uh, Ryan, thank you so much. No problem. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.